Isikoff, this is gonna make the planet explode. How did you get this scoop? Hey, Anne wants to see her office. Pete's proofing that latest draft, so we'll all be set to go to print tomorrow. We're holding on the Lewinsky story, Mike. I'm sorry. I must have misheard you, or I'm having a stroke. That's an actor named Danny Jacobs playing me, during which it's fair to say my most distressing moment in many years of journalism. It was the moment I learned that the editors of Newsweek were holding my story on Ken Starr's investigation into Bill Clinton's efforts to cover up his affair with a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. The scene is captured in somewhat garbled form in the new American crime story impeachment series that has been playing on FX in recent weeks. The series offers a fresh look at the events that led to Bill Clinton's impeachment, told largely through the eyes of the women central to the story, Paula Jones, Linda Tripp, and Lewinsky, who actually served as one of the show's producers. But after years in the making, how accurate is this TV melodrama? What's actually true? and which scenes are entirely made up. As a reporter who is more or less in the middle of the saga from the start, I'll discuss on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Well, I have to say we're doing this show with some trepidation on my part. It's a it's a bit surreal to see an actor playing yourself and um, wondering how people (laughs) process it and what they make of it. But it's not as bad as I feared it might be. Some of it is actually remarkably accurate because some of these scenes are lifted straight from my book, Uncovering Clinton, for which, by the way, I'm not getting paid a dime by the producers of this series. Uh, It's public domain, so they can just feel free to use it. Other scenes are not exactly as they happened, and others are, as I just suggested, made up. But I think it, to some degree, does give a new look at events that were so polarized, so politicized at the time. And, you know, my sense is people are revisiting this and and looking at it in ways they hadn't before. Well, here's what I think in terms of the accuracy of the show. It must have been pretty accurate because watching the first seven episodes kind of triggered my PTSD uh, (laughs) about that period, which was a very intense period. Of course, I was working with you at the time exactly uh, for, for many, many months. You didn't even tell me or Hosenball, we were your partners in crime, exactly what you were doing. You would just kind of disappear from the office and come back at the end of the day and do that kind of day in and day out. And at some point, I think we learned that you were investigating, reporting on woman number one, woman number two, woman number three. But it wasn't until much later that uh, we found out what it was all about. And then, of course, it exploded. And it was a very intense period in our lives. And actually, in some ways, the beginning of this period of really intense partisanship and polarization that we're continuing to live through. But I think just for a minute, before we get on to uh, some of the other scenes and, and characters, we do need to talk about Danny Jacobs' portrayal of you, Isakoff. <laughs> uh, and I will say, right. I, mean, I will say, I, I know this is going to make you uncomfortable, so you don't really have to comment on it. You know, there was a, a little bit that kind of rang true. Uh, you're so much more handsome than he is, <laughs> yeah, and you do not. Been, and you yes. do not have you do. He he has a dweeby voice, right. and you do not have a, have a dweeby voice. And then on a more serious note, I think what it didn't really capture the show, and what I think would be fun to get into a little bit is how difficult a story it was to report in terms of just the reporting tradecraft, just the lengths that you had to go to verify and confirm all of the details of of the affair 
and the cover-up and all of the sort of, I mean, it did get into some of the sort of ethical traps uh, that were being laid for you. Right. They, they flicked at that. I mean, my main objection is that, you know, some of the lines they have me saying are things not only that I didn't say, I never would have said because it just, it's not the way I talk, but it's sort of, you know, I come off a bit as this sort of, you know, dweeby, fuddy-duddy. And, and I, I get it. They're trying to sort of pose me as the, polar opposite of Matt Drudge, right? The old journalism versus the new journalism. But, you know... Are, being, are you saying you have more in common with Matt Drudge than uh, than this uh, show? Not, not, not more in common with Matt Drudge, but um, I think that, you know, the idea that I would say things, and we'll get into this, like, that's against my ethical principles. It's just not the way I talk. I might have thought that way, but, you know, you know my main objection is being portrayed as something of a uh, old school fuddy-duddy doesn't exactly enhance your street cred with folks like my tween son and his buddies, you know, so I'm, I'm a little uh, distressed about that. But for this, you would have a ton of street cred with them, I'm sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> at least more than I have if they watch this show, but which, by the way, they're not, you know, so yeah. that's another point. But we should get into yeah. this. I mean, yeah. we should, let's, first of all, setting the Isakoff character aside, I thought there were some, you know, remarkably accurate portrayals of the main characters, and we ought to go through some of them. And Mike, you yeah. knew most of them, although yeah. although you did not know Monica Lewinsky. I, I did not know Monica. I, I'm I'm the one who got to know Monica Lewinsky. All right, well actually. we will we will well, get into that no, later yeah. down that. later down the road. But we'll let's start <laughs> let's start with Linda Tripp. Yeah, and and I'll have to say that is the best portrayal in this series. I mean, Sarah Paulson is the actor. She has Linda Tripp nailed to the T. You know, her sort of cynicism, her exaggerated sense of self, uh, you know, her, you know, I, she could be funny at times, and you see that. I mean, you know, she had a very sharp wit. And, of course, you know, what she did was, you know, so obviously representative Reprehensible, and I think that she, you know, they capture what she was doing and, and a bit of maybe her angst about doing it. Although I got to say, that was not something I had visibility into. If she had qualms about anything she was doing, she didn't share it with me. Yeah. I mean, you would see very, just tiny little glimpses of it. Um, yeah. But then it was, Tiny. you know, overtaken right. by her narcissism, her <laughs> exactly. desire yeah. to stir the pot, to be in the middle of drama. And ultimately, I think she is portrayed as being incredibly treacherous and manipulative. And I think that is pretty accurate. Right. Now, Paula, I, can I say, I think the Paula Jones character, the, the uh, woman playing her, is also pretty good. I mean, I have objections to, and we'll get into this, about how they tell the Paula Jones story or actually don't tell the Paula Jones story. In some of the scenes, they sort of throw in there subtly to sort of undermine her. And as as we'll discuss, as far as I can tell, these things are, are made up or were smears pushed by, you know, the Clinton camp. But as far as, you know, the actual portrayal of her and who she was from this small town in rural Arkansas and somewhat sort of bewildered by, you know, everything she's unleashed by trying to tell the truth about what happened to her, I think is, uh, is, is captured in this series. Mike, you never got to know Monica, is that right? I uh, no, because the entire time that, uh, you know, I was reporting on this, if I ever tried to reach out to Monica, it would have completely blown everything up. You know, remember, she's she's resisting the subpoena in the Paula Jones lawsuit. Um, she still has ultimate allegiance to Bill Clinton. One call from me would have, um, you know, totally sabotaged the story. 
Right. Now, obviously, I had right. to... So, so it's funny because, you know, I, I wasn't involved in this until literally the bitter end, which was when the impeachment trial was actually going on in the Senate, which is when I was one of the kind of small group of lawyers who were tasked with overseeing the impeachment trial. And as part of that, we attended all of the depositions, which means that on a, uh, you know, kind of a cold day in, uh, I think it was in January, I went to the Mayflower Hotel and helped take the deposition of Monica Lewinsky. And I remember walking past you in the scrum outside as the deposition was about to occur and kind of waving at you. And then going in upstairs to the presidential suite where we took Monica Lewinsky's deposition for hours, hours at a time. And that was the first time I met Monica Lewinsky. I, years later, I was on a plane and ended up sitting next to her. So that was a little strange. But what was she like? What was so, your impression of her during so, the deposition? So first of all, Mike, your your impression of her as being on Clinton's side is absolutely correct. She and the way she answered the questions and conducted herself during the course of the deposition was literally a master class in a defensive witness, basically giving the prosecution not a hint of evidence that could be used f- against Clinton. She was represented by a legendary defense attorney in Washington, D.C. named Plato Kacharis. And I remember after her deposition uh, being over, many of the kind of lawyers kind of leaning in and saying to themselves things like she was the best witness we've ever seen in a deposition. And my other impression of her was I liked her. She was smart. She was funny. She was interesting. She was poised. But that portrait that you're painting, which I believe is at odds, I think, with the portrait on the television show where she seems kind of neurotic and a little flaky and, and, and flustered. And so that's kind of interesting to me. Yeah, I, I, the, the one takeaway I got from after kind of seeing her in the deposition was this real sense that the, the and you know, there was a smear job against her. You know, there was a concentrated effort to kind of bring her down. And I, I was really struck by how how unfair it had been. Wait, what's your take on Beanie Feldstein, the actor playing her? I think that it's probably this is probably true that she grew she grew and evolved through the, and learned a lot through this whole process. She may have been a kind of a, a like a naive, flirtatious, ditzy girl when this started, but when the whole impeachment saga was over, yeah, I you, think she grew she, up fast. She grew up fast and under kind of the worst sort of possible pressure you can imagine being under. So Isakoff, none of this would have happened if it hadn't been for another key character uh, on this show and in real life, and that's Paula Jones. And right. and it, it happened, you know, in some part because you started reporting on Paula Jones early on when you were uh, still at The Washington Post before you came to Newsweek. So, right. Yeah, that that's kind of the context of uh, that I think is is missing from this series. I mean, it is very much told, I think, largely through, you know, Monica's eyes and her relationship with Trip. Jones is a character, but, you know, this the centrality of this series is that the, the dynamic of the Trip and Lewinsky and of course Lewinsky and 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 Clinton. But what is is missing, I think, is is the broader context of of Clinton's misbehavior, which was far more than the relationship with Monica Lewinsky. You know, my own involvement in this actually begins in 1992 during the presidential campaign when I learn in the 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 summer of 1992 on the eve of Clinton's nomination to be the Democratic candidate for president that his campaign had hired a private investigator named Jack Palladino, basically to go around the country digging up dirt on women who might come forward to say they had relations with Bill Clinton. And that the Clinton campaign, as uh, political campaigns are wont to do, was, was hiding this expenditure through a Denver law firm. So they were laundering the payments to Palladino so they never showed up on FEC campaign expenditure reports. I mailed this 
down. You know, famously, I was uh, driving to New York the Saturday before it was going to run on a Sunday for the Washington Post and um, had to get in touch with somebody from the Clinton campaign. And uh, it was Betsy Wright. And I pulled over at a the Jersey Turnpike rest stop uh, to use the payphone. <laughs> I, I think I had to try several times. Um, so I kept pulling over and finally reached her and then, um, you know, engaged Betsy Wright, who basically confirmed that the, the Clinton campaign was doing this. And then I pressed her on, well, what are you using the money? F- uh, you know, what do you, what else are you using Paladino for your private investigator digging up dirt on people. And he said, no. And she said, we're only using him for bimbo eruptions. And that was the origin of that phrase that would then later take on, um, you know, continued meaning throughout the entire Clinton uh, era. But that was the, the, the sort of first hint that there's like more to Clinton's private life than people fully understood. If you have to go to lengths, and by the way, I later discovered they paid over $100,000 to Paladino, which suggested this was a pretty substantial expenditure for the purpose of digging up dirt and, on and women. And of course, it wasn't just about, about affairs and sex. It was about right. cover-ups. It was about using money to cover things up. It was about hiding the way the money was used. So. Yeah, yeah. This was, a, you know, this was, a, you know, a campaign expenditure that they were hiding from the public because they didn't want the public to know they were using campaign funds for this purpose. But then, you know, Clinton becomes president. Uh, you know, that story ran inside on the Sunday before the Democratic nomination. It got a little attention. Um, I think Mary Madeline picked up on the bimbo eruptions uh, phrase and used it on Meet the Press, and that gave it, you know, more uh, traction. But then, you know, Clinton becomes president. The Troopergate stories start running in 93. And the American Spectator? American Spectator, but also the Los Angeles Times did a very thorough account that came out at the same time, well-documented, that Clinton was routinely using his state troopers to facilitate sexual trysts, to drive him to trysts, to protect him while he was getting it on with various women. And, I mean, I remember Len Downey. Uh, who was the executive editor at the, t- at the time, coming up to me and said, this is the most, you know, extraordinary uh, account, uh, you know, I've ever seen of a president who was routinely using troopers for that purpose. And then, of course, you know, Clinton's defenders like Joe Klein, you know, wrote a column for Newsweek. Oh, this can't be true. Uh, you know, if, if it's true, you know, where are the women? How come the women haven't come forward to talk about this? You know, Joe Klein, who, of course, laundered all Clinton's sex stories for his book, Primary Colors, making a mint off it. But then when it came to actual, you know, the the true reporting that might embarrass Clinton, he um, uh, would attack Clinton's critics. And then Paula Jones comes forward. And this is where, you know, I became engaged in a serious way because I went out to investigate her allegations. And A, they were extraordinary. Remember what they are. Clinton sees a woman who, you know, catches his fancy and directs his state trooper to go fetch her, to fetch a woman and bring her, who he doesn't even know, and bring her up to his hotel room, you know, during which he, you know, makes unsolicited sexual advances, exposes himself and asks for oral sex. Hello, Harvey Weinstein. You know, hello, Andrew Cuomo. I mean, that was the kind of behavior that we're talking about here. And it was corroborated to a degree that was really astonishing. Remember, the state trooper later under oath confirmed, in fact, that he had done exactly what Paula Jones said he had done. That is you know, approached her while she's on the job, brings her up to his hotel room, brings her up to Clinton's hotel room at Clinton's direction. And then her co-worker saw this, corroborated it to me, Pamela Blackard, and then talked about how when Paula Jones emerged, she was shaken and talked about like what Clinton did. She didn't go into precise detail, but she clearly was upset. And then later that day, she meets with one of her friends, Deborah Ballantyne, and tells her the whole story from start to finish. And it's exactly the story that she would tell, you know, later when she came forward at that notorious press conference and later under oath. And there were others who corroborated aspects of it. So you had a rather detailed account of 
what was sexual seemed to me to be clear sexual harassment. Paula Jones was a state employee on the job at the time. And of course, nobody wanted to believe it. And yet, so, so look, so this reporting was controversial from the start, not only among your critics who said that you were on the sex beat and, right. and that, you know, and, and who said that, you know, a lot of this wasn't true and, you know, whatever, but even inside the Washington Post, where I think your your big Paula Jones story caused a lot of consternation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Weeks and weeks of agonizing. Can we really print this? Uh, you know, and of course, at the, at, at the time, the Clintons, uh, you know, the Clinton spin doctors led by George Stephanopoulos, who was the communications director at the time, told me a series of just flat out lies. You know, their initial line was it's a cheap fundraising trick. You know, then it was like none of this could have possibly happened. This actually came from Betsy right? Because we had investigated every woman who might have ever had anything to do with Bill Clinton. And, you know, Paula Jones never came up. So therefore, this is a newly invented story. Then Stephanopoulos says to me, well, we have evidence that Clinton wasn't even there at the time that Jones says that Jones says he was. I disprove that. I talked to multiple people at the conference, including the leader of the, the, the state official who was leading the conference who said, yeah, he was there in the afternoon wandering around exactly as Paula Jones had described it. And, you know, his fallback was, do you realize when this was? Do you realize the day that Paula Jones says this happened? Clinton had just flown back from Cleveland the night before where he gave this rousing speech to the Democratic Leadership Conference that essentially propelled him as a leading candidate for the 1992 presidential nomination. He got rave reviews from the likes of David Broder and John King and others who talked about what a promising candidate he was. So Clinton was pumped. And Stephanopoulos's line was, do you really think Clinton would be so stupid and so reckless to do this the day after he's essentially being anointed as a leading candidate for president? And... Um, that tells you a lot right there, yeah, doesn't okay. it? Because precisely the point. Anyway, but getting, getting back to the American crime story yes, uh, right. series, that idea of you being like a, you know, a sex obsessed reporter actually um, surfaces yeah. in a conversation you have with our old boss, the Washington bureau chief Ann McDaniel. Right. And we're going to play that clip in a moment, but just to set it up so people understand what we're talking about. Then I'm at Newsweek. Right. And I learn I, about another woman who had a unwanted sexual uh, tryst with Clinton while Clinton was in the White House. This was the White House volunteer, uh, Kathleen Willey. I tracked her down. I heard her detailed account. And, you know, at that point, it looked to me like here was evidence of a pattern of harassment. This is the scene in which I first show up in this um, in the American impeachment series. Hey, Jessica, walk with me. What are you working on? I still have some unwanted flirtations I'm following up on, but actually, I just got this new lead. Okay, the lead was Kathleen Willey. That's Ann McDaniel, the editor. And I should say, this is a one of those scenes that's entirely made up. The conversation that they have me saying with Ann McDaniel, not only didn't happen, it, it doesn't actually reflect um, what the attitude of Newsweek editors were. And I think, uh, Clyman, you can speak to this. I defend you to New York when they say you're on the sex beat. But, Michael, when you spend weeks chasing these women and then have nothing to show for it. This new one, it's really promising. You need something soon, or I'm putting on campaign finance. <laughs> Okay. Well, there are a couple of things about this that do yeah. not ring true and yeah. are historically inaccurate. Yes. First of all, one is there is uh, no chance in the world that Ann McDaniel would have said that New York, that she would have to defend you for being on the sex beat. New York was keenly interested in um, the reporting that you were doing. It was unclear exactly where it would lead. The standards were extremely high as to whether, you know, how you would actually report a story in the magazine about illicit affairs uh, by the president or sexual encounters or trysts. 
But I don't recall anyone ever saying we're not interested in this story. And that's no, why. and by the way, Daniel was eating up every detail. She wanted to know, you know, every little bit that I had learned and and whether we could get it into, um, you know, publishable form was yeah. a whole other question. And but the second as far point, as- and the second point is. You know, she makes it sound, uh, the character makes it sound like putting you on the campaign finance beat uh, would be <laughs> that like, was ridiculous. Know, some kind of yeah. punishment or something. You already were on the fi- campaign finance beat. We all were. I mean, That's there was right. the- We were working it together. It was a huge story. You know, Charlie Tree, the Chinese money. John Wong. Wong yeah, all Ted that. Ted Chung. Don't forget Ted Chung. Right. And yeah, yeah Hosenball's favorite, Ted yeah. Chung, all these sort of sleazy donors who were pouring money into the Clinton campaign led to there were hearings. There was uh, Justice Department prosecutions. Many of them were convicted. So it was a yeah, very the reality big deal. was McDaniel gave you a very long leash. She let you report out these stories. We didn't know where they were going to go, but there was a sense that they were going to lead uh, likely lead somewhere. And as I recall, it was Hosenball and I who continued to be on the campaign finance beat because you were off doing uh, this this other right. reporting. Right. Well, okay, that leads to our next clip here, which is um, when I am investigating the Willie story and she tells me, and I'm pushing her for who might have firsthand information or corroborating information about her account of Clinton coming on to her and pawing her and slipping his hand up her skirt and kissing her inside the Oval Office when she had come to see him about a job. And she mentions a woman named Linda Tripp, who she says she believes works at the Pentagon. And I tried to then track down Linda Tripp, and I figured the best way to talk to her was to go see her directly in the Pentagon rather than just calling her up. The element of surprise. Yes, and John Barry, who was the Pentagon uh, correspondent. I know people have wondered, Isagov was just able to wander into the Pentagon and go see Linda Tripp. Yes, um, a colleague uh, who got me a pass, and I just went straight to Linda Tripp's desk. Are you Linda Tripp? Maybe. I'm Michael Isakoff. I cover Washington for Newsweek. I know who you are. I used to work in the West Wing. People were afraid of your calls. Really? What are you doing here? Wanted to ask you a few questions. And uh, this is uh, pretty accurate. Of course, it's lifted straight from Uncovering Clinton. So, yeah, but uh, Trip was suspicious, wary. But what's even funnier and also sort of, you know, intriguing for me is what happens next. Tripp says she can't talk to me there at her desk, and she directs me to a courtyard and says she'll come out and talk to me in a few moments, and she does. Let's put our cards on the table. You're trying to do an expose on my program. What program? JCOC, Joint Civilian Orientation Conference. Ah, no, no, that's not why I'm here. Do you know a woman named Kathleen Willie? I mean, I love that because, you know, the Trip, who's so self-centered, narcissistic, whatever, thinks that, you know, my real interest is in this obscure program that she works for and that there must be some big scandal and she's in the middle of it. And this, this they took some dramatic license on this one because Trip didn't say that to me. She later testified or told others that she thought at first that's why I had come to see her. But of course, I had come her come to see her for a very different purpose. This isn't a story. Can you at least tell me did something happen? I told you I have to talk to Kathleen. But will you call me after you do? Here's my card. You can reach me. I know how to reach you. Okay. All right. There's a bigger story. Much bigger than this. You're barking up the wrong tree. So at this point, Linda Tripp already knows about Monica. Right, exactly. So what did you 
what did you think? I, I when like she said that? what are you talking about? Is what I'm thinking. Like what? There's another story bigger than this. So, you know, I, I at this point I know not all that much about Linda Tripp. She had worked in the Bush White House and then you know, um, continued to work in the Clinton White House. And I obviously wanted to know what she was talking about. She clearly seemed to be plugged in. She gave the vibe of somebody who knew a lot. And so over the next sort of weeks um, and months, I began to cultivate her and, you know, went to see her in her home. And she showed me pictures of her time in the Clinton White House at the Christmas party with Bernie Nussbaum and others in the um, in the Clinton White House counsel's office. She told me about uh, Vince Foster and how she had been the last person to see Vince Foster alive, all of which sort of obviously piqued my interest. But what I wanted to know is what was this other story that was much bigger than the one about Kathleen Willey? And of course, that turned out to be. She, she would drop hints that it involved another young woman um, who was having an ongoing relationship with Clinton at the time, which intrigued me. But like, you know, who, where, what, when, you know, what is that, you know, <laughs> where does this go? And it became this sort of, you know, cat and mouse game for a while as I tried to uh, figure out what the details were. But that does bring us to the next clip that's worth uh, playing here, and that's when we're getting ready to run a story about Kathleen Willey because she gets subpoenaed in the Paula Jones lawsuit, which now makes, you know, what she has to say of great importance. And Tripp, you know, had seen Willie right after she emerged from the Oval Office, disheveled. She had a different take on what Willie's reaction to what happened was, to what happened in there than Willie had represented. I need quotes from her on the record. She says, the only place I can do that is that day, go see her at a Georgetown salon she, where she was having her hair done. Can we help you today? Hi, my name is Harvey. I'm here to see Linda. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she's um just around the corner. Right on time. This is too public. I need to get quotes from you. Oh, it's fine. He doesn't speak a word of English. All right, so you got to explain why you introduce yourself as Harvey. <laughs> because Tripp had said if I was going to contact her, I had to use a code name. And the code name was Harvey. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, if those are the rules, I can play the rules. I was um, not exactly excited about having this interview in a Georgetown hair salon. And, you know, the reasons for my trepidation soon became clear. If you could tell me about the afternoon. The image of that day is crystal clear in my mind. I was walking near the Oval when I saw Kathleen. She was flustered, but excited, happy even. I noticed immediately that her hair was slightly askew, her lipstick was off. And she later told me what had happened. The president had taken her to a small hideaway off the Oval and he'd kissed her. So, Mike, there's a there's a conflict between how she is portraying Kathleen Willey and what you ultimately uh, reported on Kathleen Willey's experience. Because my recollection uh, from the story you did in Newsweek was that this was an unwanted ad advance, that it was something less less than an assault, but that the president had kind of really foisted himself on her in some ways. Right. Right. And that was her that was Willie's very detailed account to me off the record. That's what she had told me when I finally tracked her down. But I think actually this the American Crime Story impeachment show kind of captures the dynamic between Trip and Willie and 
in a way that explains Tripp's, you know, alternative account, which is Tripp was jealous of Willie. Willie was an attractive woman who got lots of attention from the men in the office and then ultimately did get a job in the White House counsel's office while Tripp was exiled, in her view, to the Pentagon. And that, in Tripp's mind, Sexual harassment was never really a, something that she thought about. It was all, you know, the women who were getting it on with Clinton and the women who were not. And she was clearly in the latter category. And she saw Willie as somebody who, because of her, because she was educated, because she was well-spoken, because she was attractive, could have her way with um, Clinton. I should point out, yeah, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, in, in the TV show... Linda Tripp shows up at Kathleen Willie's house one evening uh, unannounced, and they kind of get into it. And Willie says, basically, you just want to stir the pot. You want to create drama. I mean, ex exactly to your point, Mike, you want to create drama, she says, because there is no drama in your life. You have absolutely nothing going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> that does uh, sort of ring true. I should point out that, you know, Others later would come forward and confirm Willie's account and her account of how this was an unwanted sexual advance. People who contemporaneously Willie had told others who she had told and confirmed the account. But the, the, the punchline to the Georgetown Salon incident is what happens right after that. You have no idea how inappropriate. Michael Isakoff, <laughs> you will go anywhere for a story, won't you? Oh, no, that uh, this is... We're cousins. Oh, I thought for a moment this was the mysterious Kathleen Willie. Far from. <laughs> I'm Harriet. Ann Ferris. I work at the Washington Post. I actually was just leaving. It was good to see you, Anne. I'll talk to you soon. He's <sighs> a wonderful guy. He's a fabulous cousin to me. That is true. I was mortified uh, when this uh, researcher for The Washington Post, Ann Farris, who was working on Clinton's scandal coverage for The Post, you know, wanders into the Georgetown salon and sees me there and like, oh, my God, you know, um, here I am talking to my secret source and a... Uh, and a reporter for The Post has come in and seen me doing it. It's an accurate scene, although uh, the conversation between Ferris, where Tripp says um, her cousin, she actually said I was her uncle or something, or, or friend of an uncle of hers, took place after I had already left. But the, the basics are true. I was uh, at the risk of being outed by this Washington Post researcher, Ann Ferris. Um, not one of my favorite moments in American journalism. My only contribution to this story is that this hair salon that you met Linda Tripp at was the Elo Salon, which I, I also went to. When yeah, I so it could have been could have been you there. there. <laughs> could have been you there. Maybe you were and didn't even know. You know, it really we were, was the was salon that, that all of the power women went to. Madeleine Albright went there too. So yeah, <laughs> let's flash forward a bit here, and you've done the Paula Jones story. You've now done the Kathleen Willey story. Woman number three as we used to refer to her, was Monica Lewinsky. Up until this point, you didn't know about her. Linda Tripp is dropping hints, and finally she tells you that there's an intern, but doesn't tell you the name, right? She had not told me the name. She had told me uh, about the intern. She told me some details of what Monica was telling her, Tripp, but it was impossible to confirm because I didn't know who we were talking about. Right. It was there was not much I could do. I was intrigued, but, you know, obviously wanted to learn more. And then comes the time I get invited to the uh, Adams Morgan apartment of Jonah Goldberg, son of the literary agent Lucianne Goldberg, who, unbeknownst to me, Tripp had reached out to for a book deal about her experiences in the Clinton White House. Welcome to my safe house. I didn't realize you were a spy. 
That is um, uh, somebody playing Lucianne Goldberg uh, and, um, you know, who does factor into this story. And, you know, there was this sort of air of mystery about the whole thing. Why did they want me to come to this Adams Morgan apartment? What was Goldberg's role? What's going on? Um, I'm, um, you know, a bit perplexed. And that's when I start to learn a lot more about what's going on concrete proof that the president of the United States is having an affair with an intern. You've been taping her? Do you want to hear her voice? Why would I want to hear her voice? I don't even know her name. Her name is Monica Lewinsky. And that is the day in October of 97 I learned for the first time um, the identity of the mysterious former White House intern with whom Clinton was having an affair. You know, side note, uh, there was, uh, until it shut down in the museum, I, they asked for my notebook where I first wrote that down, you know name Monica Lewinsky, you know, uh, mother Marsha Lewis and other details that um, Linda Tripp was conveying to me. But the wild card there, the curveball, as it were, was this taping, that Linda was secretly taping Monica. And, you know, they have a version of what happened next No, stop. <laughs> What's wrong? I can't listen to this. Taping without consent violates my journalistic principles. Oh, for God's sake. Why don't you tell me what's on the tape and I can see if it's worth listening to. All right, there's a lot to unpack there. So, yes. first of all, going back to um, what you said at the beginning of this episode, uh, which is uh, that uh, they portrayed you as a fuddy-duddy um, yeah, who, right. who would have talked about, you know, violating your... Uh, journalistic principles. You you did not say that. You would not I, I did not that. say that. Uh, I do want to emphasize, the for hand, the record, I do have journalistic principles. But anyway, yeah. but I just don't talk that way, right? But on the other hand, you you did. I mean, everything, all of your uh, kind of journalistic training at that point taught you that this was going to be dicey, yeah. um, and that you didn't want to listen to that. You didn't want to get. Right. What? But what, 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 look, this was all done in a split second. And, you know, I have tried, you know, I tried when I wrote the book and, you know, when people have asked me about this to sort of unpack my reasoning. But what was clearly making me feel queasy is at that point, it was pretty clear to me that what they wanted was my advice on what Linda could say to Monica that would elicit responses that could be used for a story in Newsweek. In other words, they were trying to draw me into this secret taping process, and that's what made me feel uncomfortable. They had already told me that there was no, contrary to the way they portray it, in the uh, series when Tripp says concrete proof that she's having an affair. In fact, they told me that there was not concrete proof of an affair. It was just a conversation between the two of them that didn't actually refer to the affair. So it wasn't going to be a smoking gun in any way. It was an ongoing process. And that's what made me balk and say, look, listen, you know, I, wa I, I wanted to know more about what they were up to, but I did not want to become involved in their plotting to basically, you know, set up Monica and uh, and get her to say things so that I could write a story. That just struck me as uh, a little bit much. And, and, and the next the next moment in that scene is you explaining why at that point it wasn't a story and what it would what you would need for it to be a story. Right, exactly. And that was, you know, in some ways, I guess what they wanted from me, because they're, they're trying to figure out how can we get this, you know, into publication. I'm just saying, look, you know, right now we have an allegation of an affair, but we don't have the same kind of impropriety that I thought we did with Paula Jones and with with Kathleen Willey. I said, look, if she's gonna getting her a job, if there's some quid pro quo, if he's taking steps to conceal this in some ways, then then this could be a story. But in and of itself, reporting on affair on an affair which was would have been incredibly hard to verify in any case was not gonna 
make it as a story for news. So we've got that clip. There's no quid pro quo. He's not paying her off. He's not getting her a job to keep her quiet. Oh, and the but the answer to that question exactly was going to become the big issue during impeachment. Right. Wasn't that's it? that's ultimately what did you know in some ways what did happen, but in or ways that the question of whether or not that happened. Well, I mean, it's pretty clear that he did, you know, help get her a job and accelerated those efforts after she was subpoenaed to testify. That that's clear, but Clinton did it in ways that he could sort of you know. Um, but what's fascinating, always have an out. Yeah. But what's fascinating about that scene is, you know, and unwittingly, I mean, your fear, I think, from having talked to you about this, was getting drawn into this, um, you know, this kind of growing conspiracy as a player. Um, right. And what happens is you say, well, there's no quid pro quo. Uh, he's not trying to buy her silence with a job. And then, of course, on American Crime Story impeachment, the next scene, I believe, uh, is Linda calling Monica, continuing to secretly tape her, and and to actually plant the idea in Monica's mind that Bill Clinton needed to get her a job. Do we think that's accurate? Uh, you know, in a rough sense, it, it is. I mean, there's Linda did plant the thought in a subsequent conversation, but Monica wanted out on her own, and she she then begins imploring Clinton to get her a job, and that's what leads Clinton to you know uh, call up Vernon Jordan and have her meet with Vernon Jordan, and you know of course then Linda takes things to much further levels when she reaches out to the Paula Jones lawyers to arrange to have Monica subpoenaed and herself subpoenaed to draw them into the lawsuit, um, which then gave sort of a legal sort of gloss to, you know, everything that was going on. So this, but this, this particular episode that we're talking about, it really does kind of point up all of the ethical traps uh, that you could have fallen into and that you were trying to avoid. And there's one that they don't really explore in in great detail. They do talk about the the uh, infamous blue dress. Yeah. Um, but there's a part of that story uh, that involves you that they don't get into, which I think maybe they should have. But why don't you talk about that? Right. That's actually one of the funnier parts of this. And you know, too bad they didn't use this because it, I think it would have enriched the story of the blue dress. The they show Monica inviting Linda to her apartment, showing her the dress. Linda Tripp calls me up the next day and tells me about the blue dress that has a semen stain of the president on it. And she asks me, do you think I should take it? And I said, do what with it? And she said, give it to you. And I said, what would I do with it? And she said, you could have it tested. And I thought about this a bit and, you know, other than didn't really want to take custody of stolen property, um, I pointed out gently to Linda that I did not have access to Clinton's DNA, so there would be no way I could test whether that semen was, in fact, from the president of the United States. And I just sort of chalked it up with another nutty thing that Linda Tripp was saying and thinking about and kind of forgot about the whole thing. Little did I imagine that that dress would be the crucial piece of evidence that would finally force Clinton to come clean and tell the truth. And then back to the tapes for a second, because, I mean, a big part of you must have wanted to listen to those tapes. Um, you know, you're right. You're reporting the story. You know, you don't know. Yes, maybe there's no smoking gun on the tape, but, you know, you're obviously fascinated by uh, what you're hearing. Um, and to be able to uh, listen to a conversation you know, between these two women who were talking about, you know, even if not explicitly talking about an affair, will tell you something about them, tell you something about what was going on. And 
there does yeah. come a time when you are able to listen to those Well, tapes. of course. I mean, you know, things change dramatically because, you know, the as the Paula Jones suit proceeds, the subpoenas go out. And then, of course, the fateful day in January when I get the tip that Ken Starr has launched an investigation of all this. And, you know, as you well remember how astonished I was by that development, because now it was real. Now, this was un, an unbelievable story, as much about Ken Starr as it was about Bill Clinton, that Ken Starr would have secretly launched this investigation and gotten the FBI to do a sting. And it, and it, yeah. and, and it was a story. At that point, we knew it was a story. It was a story. And we knew that Starr had done it on the basis of the tapes or a supposedly smoking gun tape that Linda Tripp had made just a day or two before. And we desperately wanted to hear that tape because at this point now, it's evidence in this audacious investigation, secret investigation by the special counsel. And as you well remember, we all, we finally got access to the tapes through Tripp's lawyer and his friends like George Conway, and we listened to them. By the we, way, before we, Mike, before yeah. we get to talking about listening to the tapes, there's one more way uh, in which you were getting drawn into uh, this story almost as a player, which our listeners may not know or, or remember, uh, which is you actually got tipped off to the sting operation that right. was taking place. And, you know, and, and on this podcast a few years ago, my tipster outed himself. It was Mr. George Conway, you know, husband of Kellyanne Conway, who was- How did he one, know? Well, he was one of the elves, this sort of secret cabal of lawyers who were assisting the Paula Jones lawyers. So, they, you know, they had access to everything in the um, that was going on in the case. And he decided to uh, give me this tip, which, as you remember, you know, Know, I went white uh, that afternoon, like, oh, my God. Yeah, I think you, you came back from yeah. wherever you had learned this. Well, I learned it at my desk, and then I had to go out for a walk and had, you know, had lunch and then came back and told you, you're not going to believe what is going on right yeah, now. Yeah, I remember you looked like you'd been punched in the stomach. Yeah, and at that point, of course, we wanted to listen to the ta- We needed to listen to the tapes. We needed to know what the evidence was that prompted Starr to launch this investigation. Then... I thought we had, and we did, and while this the, the tape didn't, you know, didn't live up entirely to the uh, expectations of the, uh, of the Jones team, it didn't clearly show evidence of Jordan or Clinton telling her to lie, but it clearly confirmed the essence of the relationship and that this was of, you know, sufficient gravity to a lot of people. So... The fact is, we knew what Starr had done. Nobody else did. And we now knew this was a story. And then Saturday, we all, you know, gathered at the offices of Newsweek to try to convince the editors to run the story. Uh, You played a role in this because you got confirmation from the Justice Department that they had approved an expanded mandate for Starr to do this investigation of Clinton and Monica. And at that point, it's official. It's an officially Justice Department sanctioned investigation. And it seemed to, I think, both of us like this is a no brainer. Of course, we run the story. It's an unbelievable scoop. We can't print it now. New York thinks it's too risky. What if Lewinsky's now telling the truth? We know she's telling the truth. Yeah, that's not good enough. Of course it is. You're asking the most respected news magazine in America to say the president is having an affair and then lied about it under oath. And your only real source is one girl's voice on a tape. A girl we haven't even actually spoken to. We need more sourcing. And then we'll go for it in our next issue. This story is going to break in 24 hours. Call New York and tell them we can't fucking wait. If you could for just once in your life refrain from acting like we we have our own Watergate. We can break it tomorrow. Sometimes it's just not worth being first. Okay. (laughs) There's so much. There's so much that's wrong with that. The one thing I would say that was dead on, not for this story, but 
you know, lots of other stories you were trying to do was you telling McDaniel, call New York and tell them that we're fucking publishing this story. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Now, there is one line in there that is accurate, and that is that last line from McDaniel sometimes it's not worth being first. (laughs) She did, in fact, say that. And, you know, it kind of blew me away. Um, I thought that's what you hired me for, (laughs) to be first on stuff. But the idea that, you know, all we had was a voice on a tape. No, we had official confirmation of the most breathtaking, audacious criminal investigation in the country (laughs) targeting the president of the United States. States, and we knew that was real. So that was not a factor. The other thing that kind of bugs me about that is, you know, where I sh- they have me say, oh, we have our own Watergate, because I sort of explicit- In fact, it was the opposite. It was the as opposite. As I recall, there was a, yeah. there was a moment when um, Mark Whitaker, who was uh, the I think managing it was Rick editor, Smith. but Rick he was- Smith. Who, who ma- Rick Smith, who makes the comment, you know, can we really run a story that could lead to the impeachment of the president without, you know, A, B, C or D or doing, you know, God knows what. And of course, you know, you and I looked at each other and when he said impeachment and rolled our eyes like, what is he talking about? You know, we hadn't even thought about that. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I think we were so like close to it. I mean, you in particular, we were so deep in the, the details of the story. Rick had the vantage point of like not being involved in it and stepping back. And it to him, it was clear that if this had come out, this would lead to impeachment proceedings. And of course, it did. And of course, Bill Clinton was <laughs> impeached, <laughs> though, yeah. though not though not removed. But that I think that de- uh, debate in the in the offices of Ann McDaniel took place starting fairly early on Saturday morning and went until the early all afternoon. Day. All, all, all day. Late, really. late, all late day. afternoon. Yeah, because I, I think it was around midday when I, uh, I I thought, I think we both thought that there was no way in the world that they were going to run the story, that they had made, made up their minds. You know, they argued that um, one argument I remember was, well, what if Monica Lewinsky is just a flake, you know, and 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 a made fantasist. this story a, a fantasist, fantasist and right. made this and made this story up. And then does it really matter that there's a Ken Starr investigation? And I think it was Mark Whitaker at one point who said, well, well this is just another Ken Starr investigation. But to which you the know, answer and, and, is this is the ultimate Ken Starr yeah, investigation. Yeah. Right. But, but you have to sort of think about the times. Um, we were a weekly news magazine. And if we had run a story that was fundamentally wrong because Monica Lewinsky had made it up, we would be sitting there on the newsstand uh, for a full week with this explosive story that turned out to be based on, you know, a young woman's fantasies. And I think they were seeing that as a potential PR nightmare. The Internet did exist at that point, but we were not using it to publish original content. We only used our AOL dial-up, you know, site to, to publish to reprint the published magazine. Right. Exactly. And that, you know, this is a uh, ancient era in, uh, in in internet journalism, right? So, of course, what famously happens is one of the crew, you know, one of the gang, whether it was Goldberg or Conway or Coulter, you know, tips off Drudge and Drudge, you know, posts a story that night. Now, it has always bugged me that, you know, people say Drudge, you know, uh, broke the story, broke the story because he didn't have the story. He claimed that the story was about Clinton's affair with Lewinsky. No, the uh, the story was that Starr was investigating an alleged affair between the president and an intern and that that's what made it news. You know, as I said before, and I said at the time, this is as much a Ken Starr story as it is a Bill Clinton story. Of course, we had very good, you know, look, all the circumstantial evidence suggested Monica was not a fantasist. There was plenty of other indicia that suggested things that Trump was saying that Monica had told her were actually true. But ultimately... And some of your reporting, as I recall, was corroborated the intimate relationship. And one detail, one t- detail I remember 
is didn't didn't you have the messenger, the courier yes, receipts? Yes, exactly. Yeah, there were. What they was were, that? Yeah, the the um, <laughs> you know Monica tells Linda she's sending letters and you know other uh, gifts gifts to Clinton, and she's using a messenger service. To do so, or and, that is not good. Uh, uh, OPSEC operational no, security. No, but especially because Linda. I mean Goldberg, Lucian Goldberg knew had some relationship or friendship with somebody who ran a messenger service in Washington, and Linda Tripp has Lewinsky use that messenger service and then arranges to get the receipts from the messenger service. So I have the receipts of the messages that Monica was sending to Clinton. So clearly, you know, through Betty Curry, Clinton's secretary. So, you know, there was so many elements of a setup to all this. And I think in, you know, my book, when I wrote about all this, you know, I think my bottom line is they framed a guilty man. (laughs) I mean, they took, you know, extraordinary steps uh, to set up events to create events and Clinton, you know, fell right into it. The uh, the rest, as they say, is uh, is history. I do think it'll be interesting to see how they portray the um, what follows and ultimately the impeachment of uh, the trial of, of, of Clinton. And it's clear the Republicans overreached um, by pushing for impeachment, Starr overreached by probably getting involved in the first place, and then, of course, issuing his notorious report with all the sexual details. But at the end of the day, you know, nobody comes out <laughs> looking good in 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 this. Um, Clinton himself did take steps to cover up his affair with Lewinsky. He did lie under oath. You know, today, from today's perspective, you know, a CEO or a, uh, a foundation head or just about anybody in public life who has an affair with an intern is probably going to lose his job pretty quickly. But, you know, as I pointed out before, to me, the larger story here was the pattern of conduct by Clinton that involved other incidents and uh, relationships that were far worse than his one with uh, Monica. Of course, you know, we don't learn until after impeachment about the most serious one of all, which was Juanita Broderick, who credibly alleged that Clinton had raped her while Clinton was attorney general of Arkansas. And um, that was a story that both the Washington Post put on the front page and NBC confirmed itself and uh, aired uh, with my former NBC colleague, uh, Lisa Myers, doing the reporting. And I think that, you know, there was such ferocious pushback by the Clinton spinners on everything about the Lewinsky matter that, you know, it uh, ended up, you know, obscuring the larger context of Clinton's misconduct. At the end of the day, do you see Monica Lewinsky as a victim? Yes, she was. She's, this began when she was 22 years old. She was an intern. It's over the age of consent. But at the other, on the other hand, you know, we now appreciate things like power imbalance between the most powerful man in the world and a, uh, and a young intern as being, uh, you know, in and of itself problematic. So but it goes it goes way beyond Bill Clinton's treatment of her, right? I mean, there is a sense in which she is manipulated by just about everybody involved in this sordid right. saga, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Linda Tripp she- obviously who is treacherous and devious and manipulative, but the elves who had their own political agenda and of course uh, Ken Starr and his team who the way it's portrayed uh, on the show is that they were, at the end of the day, not getting anywhere on the Whitewater investigation, and all of a sudden, this thing falls in their lap. Um, yeah. And so they were- Well, there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. They had pretty much you know, hit the wall on Whitewater because they couldn't get the cooperation of people like Susan McDougal, who you know went to jail rather than testify about- 
Whitewater and her and Clinton, and ultimately, of course, gets pardoned by Clinton um, on his last day in office. Um, so, in that sense, the cover up of all things Clinton continued. I just want to say one more thing. You know, there are a couple of just getting back to Paula Jones because that was the you know the story that really got me into this. There are a couple of things they throw in there that I thought subtly undermined were designed as a subtly undermine. Uh, Jones's story, like they have the scene where uh, Jones's husband, Steve Jones, uh, is meeting with their lawyer, Danny Trailer, and saying, you know, he wants a job at on designing women. He's a frustrated actor, and he thought if they filed suit, they could uh, negotiate and get him a job. You know, because Harry Thomason, the Clinton crony, was one of the producers of Designing Women. That's all fiction. I talked to Danny Trailer about it. He said, you know, he never heard that. That scene never happened. Nothing like that ever happened. I talked to Joe Camerata, who later became Clinton uh, Jones's lawyer. Uh, you know, he too said no. Never once ever did the idea of Steve Jones getting a job on Designing Women ever came up in the negotiations with the Clinton lawyers. So that was I. Uh, I thought a uh, injustice to Paula Jones because it kind of suggested maybe there was a financial motive behind um, what she was doing when I don't think there was. But, you know, I, I, in the vast scheme of things, that's not central to the larger story here. But it is you know worth highlighting that there were some liberties they took. Uh, to tell this story uh, that weren't fair to everybody in it. And, and there was one other that was in some ways even more potentially more damaging to her reputation. Um, oh, yeah. Which involves someone named Dennis Kirkland. Dennis Kirkland, right. You know, they, they show this in the scene where Clinton's lawyers are grilling her about a guy named Dennis Kirkland, who claimed that Jones had given him and four of his friends blowjobs one night in, uh, you know, a couple of years earlier. What they don't tell you is, first of all, this was a story being spread by Bob Bennett himself and other Clinton spinners. What they don't tell you is that Kirkland was a convicted felon, a admitted drug abuser, and every one of the four people who he claimed had gotten blowjobs jobs from Paula Jones, you know, flatly denied it. So there was zero corroboration, but it was an example of how um, the Clinton spinners uh, tried to smear Paula Jones, just as they tried to smear Monica Lewinsky, suggesting she was a stalker uh, and, uh, you know, other unflattering things. So uh, it's just a reminder of the hardball that people played. Washington is often not, it can be, it can often be a very nasty place, as, you know, we have learned many times over the years. And, you know, this is one of the graphic examples of that. Well, you know, I think overall, the mm -hmm. FX series got a remarkable amount right. And uh, I'm sure it's a it's such an intricate, complicated, convoluted story in, in, in so many ways. And I think they handled all that pretty well. Um, but there are some things that don't line up with what happened. Um, and I think it's important to try to set this, the record straight. I'm sure uh, there are people who will quibble with some of the things that we've said. <laughs> I'm this, sure there'll be on, many on people show, who will should, quibble with what and, we're saying here. Right? And, you, and they should have at it. Tweeted us at Skullduggery Pod. Okay. And on that note, we'll sign off and uh, get back to more current events in our next episode. Mm -hmm.